The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight, as we come to God's Word, we're looking at the book of James. If you were here last Sunday evening, Pastor Keeper took us through the the first part of chapter 2, where James confronted ungodly favoritism in the church, and where believers, it seemed, were showing favor to particular people who were of benefit to them, uh, based on outward or external earthly realities. And James told us that this type of behavior is sin and leads to judgment. Well, tonight we're going to move on to the second half of chapter 2 in James, as James continues to focus on the behavior or character of God's people. Now, many of you will likely know that the second half of James is an exciting passage to look at, a passage of scripture that's probably caused uh, some of the most consternation or high blood pressure amongst Protestants uh, over the years. Uh, but I think uh, this is a, a wonderful passage for us to consider. So let's read it uh, together. Uh, we're looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Uh, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's page 1012, I believe. Follow along as we read God's word together. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, this is your word that you have given us. We're so grateful that you have revealed yourself and your will to us in scripture. And I pray that you would continue to speak to us through the power of your spirit tonight, that we might become more and more like you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
I suppose it may seem funny for a, a young guy like me to make a comment like this, but as I was preparing this sermon, I was struck by the fact that when it comes to memory of childhood, there are certain specific moments and conversations that stand out in every detail. And then there seem to be sort of whole years missing from your memory. And I was thinking about that this week as I read this passage because one of those sort of blazoned, sharp memories in my mind is a conversation that happened between my parents and one of my friend's parents, and it was about this passage in James chapter 2. And I remember my friend's dad saying that he was at sort of a crisis point in his faith because he had read James chapter 2 the week before, and it seemed to undermine everything that he had always known and believed about Christianity. And I just remember that, that conversation standing out in my mind. And as I read this, I was also thinking about uh, some critics of the Bible who were sort of rejoicing over this passage because it seemed to word for word contradict other verses in the New Testament. And so we come to this passage and find that it's a very important passage for us to understand, both not only as Christians for our own faith, but also as we communicate the truth of Scripture uh, to others. So I hope that we'll see as we work through James 2 tonight that James is making an essential point for all believers to understand that's not at all contradictory with anything else in God's word. And so what I want to do is, is consider three things in this passage or really walk through it. First, we want to read this passage carefully and make sure we understand what, what Paul, or excuse me, James is saying. Second, we want to understand this passage clearly in light of other scripture. How does this passage fit in light of what else we know from, from scripture? And then lastly, we need to apply this passage correctly, knowing what it calls us as followers of Jesus to do. So let's first work by, start by working through this passage uh, carefully. I think whenever we read a passage of scripture, we want to start by asking, well, what is the main point that God is trying to communicate to us in this passage of Scripture. And in this passage, the main point is very easy to find. It starts off in the very first words where James, he pulls no punches, but asks the central question right in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, if you look back at the previous passage that Pastor Kiefer preached on last week, you'll, you'll see or you'll remember that James has been arguing that a true Christian is one who obeys God's royal law, who loves his neighbor as himself, whereas those who break the law are judged as transgressors. But I think James is now anticipating a bit of an objection. You know, what, if, what if the Christian who says, James, you've talked about obeying the law and, and obeying God, Well, that's all well and good, but as Christians, we know that faith in Jesus is the key. Faith is the key, and so I rely on faith, and I don't really worry about the whole obedience thing. Um, I'm just just focused on faith and and obedience to God and and good works and righteousness. I just don't, don't worry about that at all. I think if you look at verse 18, you see this objection spelled out a little bit more clearly, where James summarizes his objector, who says, you have faith. I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so we have this sort of contrast between just faith with no obedience to God and faith that leads to obedience to God. 
You know, when we read these verses, we sort of say, okay, faith versus works is the, uh, the, the conflict here. Well, I'm with faith, right? I'm on the side of faith, not works. And that's uh, kind of our, our uh, initial reaction. But I think if we look carefully at this objection, we need to see that this objector is holding that faith only and faith with obedience are the two different options. It's sort of like, uh, sort of like your, your cell phone plans or your Costco membership. There's the basic plan and the plus plan. You've got the basic plan, which is faith only. I don't need to worry about the obedience side. And then you've got the plus plan, which is why well, faith and I obey God. And this contrast that's going on here. And so the question is, should a person who declares, I believe in God, I believe that Jesus is Lord, but does not live in obedience to God, should that person expect salvation or condemnation when judgment day comes? Can that faith that is apart from works save him? That's the key question. And I want to make sure that we realize how relevant this this topic is for us today. As I was preparing for this sermon, I couldn't stop thinking of a conversation with a young person I knew who grew up in the church but in their early 20s, they wound up uh, living unmarried with their partner, having a child, and leaving the church. And I remember a conversation with this person, and I remember very clearly what, what they said as I challenged this person about salvation and faith in Christ. This person said to me, you know, the church, the church was very helpful for me when I was young, but I just don't feel like I need the church anymore. But I believe in God. And I'd remember that conversation and think how often we hear things like that. Well, I believe in God. Yes, my life doesn't match up to anything that, that Scripture or God would say, but I believe, I believe there's a God. I believe, I believe even that Jesus came. And I think you hear behind this very, very current uh, example what, what James is talking about here. And so whether it's early Jewish Christians who heard that faith in Christ was the means for salvation, not works in the law, or whether it's a 21st century American who know there is a God but decide to live in the flow of the world rather than to live out their faith in Christ. James's question is very relevant. Can faith without obedience save a person? I think James, James leaves us in no suspense about his answer either. If we want to talk about the main point, he states his answer four times in 12 verses. In verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20 asks, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 24 declares, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And verse 26 wraps up the passage with the summary statement, so also faith apart from works is dead. So the main point of the passage is very clear. James attacks this question from every angle and comes to the same conclusion. That a belief in God that is not accompanied by obedience to God is useless for salvation. The person who chooses the basic faith-only, obedience-unnecessary plan should expect, I think, in James's words from his previous passage, judgment without mercy. Well, if you just look through just quickly James's argument, you'll see he, that he uses four examples to prove his point. In verses 15 to 16, he uses an analogy. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And I think you can all see James's point. If, if I walk up to a person who is poorly clothed, 
who is, is, has no food to eat. And I say, brother, my desire for you is that you would be filled with good food, that you would be warm and have everything you need. So blessings to you. And I turn and walk away. There's the brother still cold and unfed. What good do words do if they are not accompanied by action? Words unaccompanied by action are useless. They accomplish nothing. And I think, of course, if you were a witness to that, and you uh, would probably come to some conclusions about me. My supposed wish for this person to be warmed and fed is, is not matched by my actions at all. And so James, James concludes here, in the same way, just like words unaccompanied by action do no good, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Well, then in verse 19, James uses another example, a, a sort of obvious example, if you will. You believe that God is one, you do well, he says. So do the demons, and they shudder. Many, many of you probably know that uh, in a Jewish background, God is one, uh, likely is a, a reflection of Deuteronomy 6.4, the, the most famous and, and, and used Shema, as it would have been called, the, the summary of what God's people believed. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So I think James takes this, this famous statement of faith and says, you know that great statement, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, God is one. Well, the demons believe that's true. They know for sure that that is true. That the Lord is God, the Lord is one. But would anyone claim that demons are saved? Of course not, because the demons' response to their belief, is to run the other way in rebellion against the Lord's will, not in submission to him. And so you, can, you see James's point. He said, why would you expect, if the demons can believe this is true and yet respond in disobedience leading to judgment, why do you think it would be different for you, foolish person, if you believe that God is true but run in rebellion against his will rather than obedience to him, you too should expect judgment. And then James turns in the final verses, 21 to 26, to his two Old Testament examples, Abraham and Rahab, to show that the faith that saved them was a faith accompanied by obedience, not a faith by itself, apart from obedience. You all know, and both from the Old Testament as well from the New Testament, that Abraham was a man of faith. Genesis 15:6 tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But James uses these words, fulfilled and completed. He says that this scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, says Abraham's faith was fulfilled by his works, were completed by his works. You see that in verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, so that the scripture was fulfilled Abraham believed God. Now, what I think you should be hearing here by these words like fulfilled and completed, it can almost sound like James is saying, well, yes, it was good that Abraham had faith in God, but it needed to be completed by work. So it's sort of faith plus works. And I don't think that's what James is saying at all. He's saying the scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God. But what would have happened if Abraham had actually refused to sacrifice Isaac on the altar? Well, we would have questioned that faith. That faith would not have been completed or, or lived out. It's, it's the fact that Abraham 
sacrifices Isaac out of faith in God. It's that action that completes or lives out or fulfills the testimony of his faith. It's not a faith plus needed, needed works in a sort of, we need both of these, faith isn't enough. It's that faith is fulfilled, it's carried out, it's lived out naturally when we do what our faith leads us to do. A true faith in God leads Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And so this is what James argues, that Abraham's testimony of faith that comes in Genesis 15 is fulfilled or lived out in Genesis 22 when he sacrifices his son. And the same thing is true of Rahab. She claimed to the spies that she believed in the power of Israel's God. But what if, after proclaiming that she believed in the power of Israel's God, Rahab had holed the spies up on our roof, called 911, and turned them over to the Jericho police? We would say, nice try. Your statement of faith was not actually true because her actions would not bear it out. But the fact is, Rahab completed her statement of faith. She fulfilled her statement of faith. She lived out her statement of faith. I think that's how James is using, using the, this, this phrase here. She gave testimony to her true faith by acting accordingly. She hid the spies and was saved because she lived out the faith that she testified to. I thought about this idea of true faith is always lived out. True faith is always lived out. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about uh, our campus minister, Tripp Beans, who ministers at uh, RUF there at Millersville University. And he was telling me that at the beginning of the year, he does a number of things to try to bring students uh, into relationship with him and with RUF. And one of the things he does is he, he has a magician come and do a magic show. And the culminating trick at the end of the magic show is uh, that this magician sets up a guillotine. And he proceeds to you know, slide a potato under the guillotine and, you know, whoosh, slices the potato right in half. And he puts five or six different items in and the guillotine slices them in half. And then the magician invites someone from the audience to come and put their neck under the guillotine. And he gets a volunteer and, whoosh, you know, puts the guillotine down. And lo and behold, after slicing six straight objects, the person is unharmed. And I was thinking, what are the chances that if I was in that audience, I would volunteer to stick my neck under the guillotine that had just sliced potatoes and melons and such? And I'm sure if he asked, how many of you think that I can pull this trick off, I'd probably raise my hand. I mean, I, I doubt he's going to commit murder on stage, so I, I probably believe that he can. But am I willing to stick my neck under there? That's the testimony to whether I actually believe that the magician can do what he says he can do. And I think that's a lot of what James is saying here. You say you believe in God, but how do we know that your faith is true and genuine? We know your faith is true and genuine when you live it out by what you do. If what you do contradicts your statement of faith, that undermines the reality of that statement that you're making. And so here we have James, by analogy, by obvious example, by Old Testament stories, James is repeatedly demonstrating his point Faith, the words of faith by themselves are useless, are dead, do not justify a person before God. It is faith that is lived out, that is fulfilled by our lives that saves a person. But I'm sure you can see why this passage is so confusing for Christians and such uh, juicy material for, for critics of the Bible. Because 
if you hold, say, verse 24 up to a passage, say, like Romans 3.28, you see a particular rub. James says in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Romans 3.28 says, a person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. Well, it certainly seems, if you're a good reader of, of English, that they have just said something directly contradictory. Or, or maybe you, you hear James here and then you think to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And I say, well, okay, I get what James is kind of saying, but it sure seems like he's going in direct contradiction to other passages in Scripture. So let's move on to make sure we understand this passage clearly in light of everything that God's Word says. And I think as we look at these passages, while James 2, say verse 24, and a passage like Romans 3:28 may appear to directly word-for-word word contradict each other, Paul and James actually agree perfectly. And these verses only appear contradictory because of the context of the question that Paul and James are addressing and because of the way they use the word faith. And if we look at this, I think we'll see that the two are actually in agreement. See, James is actually very precise in what he means by the word faith. When James talks about faith here, he defines it for us very carefully. James says that the person who has faith, verse 14, someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can that type of faith save him? In this passage, James is talking about claimed belief that is not matched by our lives. That sort of words-only claim or, or testimony of belief that is not lived out or matched by our actions. And so when we come to verse 24, and James says that faith alone does not save us, he's not talking about a true and genuine faith that's not enough. Rather, he's saying that the claimed faith that is alone and bears no fruit in a person's life is not sufficient for salvation. So James is very clear that when he says faith, he's talking specifically about the words or the the spoken claim to faith that is not lived out. But that's not how Paul uses faith at all. When Paul talks about faith, he is always talking about a true faith, a genuine faith, an actual faith that has been placed uh, in Christ Jesus. For Paul, faith is the sincere belief and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior such that we abandon our efforts to get right with God and throw ourselves on Christ alone. And that true faith leads to salvation. I think maybe just for some clarity, if you wanted to flip back to James 1, uh, 21, James has a great statement there about uh, God's word in James 1, 21. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I think that's a beautiful uh, picture there of receiving with meekness God's implanted word, which is able to save your souls. You see, I think there, a statement which seems to match the fact that it's God who saves us through his word and through the faith of receiving it with meekness, not, uh, not some sort of work salvation. Um, and so we have James and Paul here who, who agree, but are using the word faith differently in these two passages. I think James and Paul are also asking two different questions 
uh, in the context of their statements. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, is asking the question, how does a person who is sinful become right with God? How can I, as a sinner, be restored to fellowship and reconciled to a holy God? And Paul says that our justification is a declaration that God makes when he says that our sins are forgiven and we are counted right with him. And we get that not through circumcision or through keeping the law or through doing good works. None of that can do that. Our reconciliation with God is a gift from God. Our forgiveness and our righteousness comes from him and from him alone through faith in Jesus Christ. And so when Paul asks the questions, how do we get right with God? It is through faith alone. Through faith alone where God gives forgiveness and reconciliation. But James is asking a different question. James is asking, well, what type of person will be saved on the last day and what type of person will be condemned? When we stand before the law of liberty for judgment, what will lead to salvation and what will lead to condemnation? And the question he's asking is, will the person who believes God exists or believes that Jesus was God but lives like the world be saved? And that's how he's using this language of of justification and received by God. Well, the person who arrives on Judgment Day saying he believes in God but has lived a worldly life and has no obedience, will he be saved or condemned? And James says, this person will be condemned for only the faith that is lived out in obedience is a true faith. Only that leads to salvation and reconciliation. And James's, James's statement here is not not unique. Some, some people have, I think, sort of subordinated James to Paul and said, well, Paul's statement of faith alone is the real gospel. And James is, we kind of tweak him here to make sure he's, he's saying something that's okay. But James is saying exactly what Jesus and Paul and John and the whole rest of the New Testament say. This passage in James sounds quite a lot like what Jesus himself says in Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It sounds a lot like not by faith alone, but by faith that is justified by good works. Or James sounds like he's saying exactly what John says in 1 John 2, 3-5. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we say, or whoever says, I know him, that is God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And James is saying exactly what Hebrews 12, 14 says, I think, when it says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See, James is not this sort of outlier in Scripture here. I originally had about eight more passages that sound exactly like these and realized for the sake of time we couldn't go through all of them. But I hope you hear that this passage in James is not something that sort of contradicts the whole rest of the Bible. James's testimony that faith in Christ is lived out in obedience. Our union with Christ yields both justification, our being declared right with God, and also our sanctification, our being enabled to live more and more in obedience to God. And so James and Paul are not at all contradictory. I think if you say, well, okay, is Paul the outlier here? But I I think obviously not. Maybe you'd think of a passage by Paul in perhaps Galatians. Galatians is this great book of justification by faith. 
But in, in, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, In Christ, neither circumcision nor other circum- uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And I think you hear, hear Paul saying there, it's, it's the faith that works. It's the faith that works itself out in love that yields salvation. Not works of the law, not good works to get right with Christ, but true faith. True faith that yields obedience. And so here we have James 2, consistent with Paul, with Jesus, with John, the whole testimony of the New Testament, declaring mere claimed belief in God will not lead to salvation, but only a genuine faith that bears the fruit of obedience to God. Well, as we come toward the end, then perhaps we should ask this, how should we apply this truth correctly? Now, uh, if you follow closely sort of one of these things, maybe you say apply it correctly. Uh, why would you put it that way? Are you just trying to get alliteration in because I said we need to follow the passage carefully and understand it clearly and apply it correctly? But this is not just an alliteration game here. I say correctly because this passage has also been misapplied and applied badly, perhaps as much as it has been applied helpfully. So what does this passage have to do with our lives as God's people? Some, some have read this passage and are immediately filled with guilt because they look at their life and they realize that sometimes they still sin. Or they look at this passage and they start to wonder, well, do I have enough good works that are living out my faith? What if I don't have enough wor- good works that are, are living out my faith? And doubt about our salvation plagues our hearts. And so if our minds start down this path, we need to remember that James is addressing believers who claim to have faith, but whose life shows no evidence of repentance or obedience to God. Perhaps if our minds start down this path, we need to hear John in 1 John 2.1 remind us that no one in this life is without sin. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Ultimately, if we are tempted to hear this passage and be filled with guilt because our lives are not good enough, we wonder, we need to remember that this passage was written to convict the hardened heart of its sin and danger, not to wash guilt and doubt over the softened but not yet perfect heart who is seeking Christ through sincere faith. So let us not apply the passage incorrectly in that sense. But then there are others who have read this passage and minimized this passage and tried to sort of sweep it under the rug a bit. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, they say. So while of course we should want to obey God, obedience is not as important as faith. Or others have said, Obedience is a good thing to do when we can, but let's be realistic. None of us really can. So let's just focus on grace. Or others, others have said, well, if God enables me to obey today, then fine. But I'm not going to expect to see any obedience in my life because I'm still a sinner and and obedience is not really possible for me. See, these are unbiblical conclusions that focus so heavily on salvation by grace through faith that they sweep obedience under the rug and minimize this passage. So if our minds go here, I think we need to realize that we're deciding in favor of a passage that talks about grace against passages that talk about obedience. This is not a full harmonization of Scripture. 
And this is very important for us to hear because there's a strong movement, even in the Reformed circles today, that will minimize obedience to God's law as unnecessary or at odds with the true gospel of grace. What would have been termed in old theological terms, antinomianism against the law, against obedience, is alive and well. And so we need to make sure that we hear James 2 and we don't minimize Scripture's call for obedience. So those are some incorrect applications. What are the correct applications? What should we hear from this passage? How should we apply James 2 to our hearts? Well, I think James 2 calls us to the importance of obedience and to the joy of obedience. And I want to look at each of them briefly. James calls us to the importance of obedience when he declares that faith apart from works is dead. And so there is a very real, though we need to be careful how we say this, there is a very real way in which James is arguing that obedience to God is necessary for salvation. Now again, we need to be very careful how we say that. Reformed theologians have always talked about the necessity of faith and the necessity of obedience or works. But the necessity comes in two different places. Faith is the prior necessity. In other words, in order for us to become right with God, faith is necessary to unite us to Christ. But in theological terms, good works or obedience are of consequent necessity or the consequent condition, the Puritans said. In other words, good works were the thing that always follow from true faith in Christ, such that if our obedience to God is missing, that is testimony to the fact that we never had the first condition, that is faith. And so what we should be hearing from James 2 is this importance of our obedience to Christ. I think you can see this from Paul as well. Maybe you think of a passage like Ephesians 2 in verses 8 and 9. Paul says, salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. But then at the end of verse 9 into verse 10, Paul says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And we hear the same, the same formula here. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, but Christ saved us for good works that we should walk in them. Maybe you think of of the passage in Titus. Titus, which has been such an encouragement uh, to me in Titus chapter 2. In verses 11 and 12, where it's, or 11 through 14, where uh, Paul talks about our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us in order to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's verse 14. Actually, I picked up at the end of the passage there. But one of the key reasons why Jesus died for us was to purify us so that we would be zealous for good works. This is is such a key thing. I was reading Mark Jones, uh, a well-known Reformed author, this week, and he was talking about how one of the key motivations for us as Christians to obey God is out of gratitude for what God has done for us. But he said we have to be careful, too, because if we just say, well, good works are just our way to thank God for what he has done, that can begin to make obedience seem unnecessary, like it's our polite response to God, 
but it's not actually a core part of what God is doing in us. And the Bible doesn't take that position. It says that obedience is necessary to see God, for faith without works is useless. Again, we hear this not to cause guilt to wash over the softened heart that is seeking Christ, but to remind the heart that perhaps has not been fully drawn to Christ of the importance of obedience. I think John Owen, the the famous Puritan, put it best when he said, It is true. Our interest in God is not built upon our holiness. But it is just as true that we have no interest in God without holiness. I think it's so well said by John Owen. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, I think we need to hear James calling us to strive for holiness, to eagerly look to God's word, to direct us in obedience and righteousness, for it is part of what Christ has died to work in us. It is what God has called us to, and all true obedience will yield, or all true faith will yield the fruit of obedience. But secondly, I don't want us to leave this passage without also seeing that this passage, I think, calls us to one of the great joys of salvation. Because obedience to God, when we have been saved by Christ, is no longer this burdensome duty. It is no longer a burden and a cross to bear. When God brings us to faith and unites us to Christ, he gives us several things. And Calvin says this so well. He says, when we have been united to Christ, we are given multiple blessings and joys. On the one hand, we're given justification, this being received again by God where our sins are forgiven and we're reconciled to him. And we should rejoice when we see that by faith we are united to Christ and given this salvation and reconciliation to him. But we are also given in our union with Christ, God's spirit who is sanctifying us and enabling us to obey him more and more, to be more and more like him. And this increased obedience as God's spirit works in us is just as great a blessing that should lead to just as great a joy as we have in our justification, both being received and accepted by God through faith alone and the growing obedience we have by his spirit are blessings that we should rejoice in. I love how John pulls these together in 1 John chapter 3 and some of my favorite verses in the New Testament. At the beginning of 1 John 3, John sort of explodes in this ecstasy. He declares, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You see John just reveling in this acceptance that God has given us as his children. He says, What kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There we have this sanctification brought into the likeness of Christ. It's not perfected yet. We're not there yet, but that's this blessing. And, And then John draws this conclusion. He says, for all who have this incredible promise that we shall be like Christ, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, John says, flowing from this great gospel promise that we will be made like Christ through faith in him, 
comes the natural joy that now we will purify ourselves like Christ is pure. That's our joy. That's our longing. That's, that's what we want to do. We're doing that now. We're striving for that now out of excitement and anticipation of the perfected sanctification that will be ours to come. This is summer. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about summer fruit. I don't know if you are a summer fruit lover like I am, but raspberries, blueberries, and peaches pretty much are the top three things that I could put into my mouth. And if you're a summer fruit lover, you know how the fruit season comes about. The fruit season starts with just an initial first batch of fruit. You know, it's, it, it comes there and there's just one little thing of blueberries at the fruit stand on the side of the road. And you're like, ah, I'm going to buy it. It's expensive. I'm going to love it. But I know that this is a promise of more to come. And so I relish it and delight in it because more is coming. And I think that that's, that's the way righteousness and obedience in Christ are. Christ has bought us by his blood and united us to himself and is restoring us into his image and righteousness and holiness. We're waiting for the perfected fulfillment of that to come. But the more we see it worked in us, the more joy and delight and excitement we have in it now. And so our obedience to Christ is no burden. It is a joy because it's one of the blessings that we have received from Christ. It is one of the great things Christ is working in us and it is one of the key things that we're looking forward to. And so we are participating in that, striving for it with all the joy of knowing that Christ has promised to make us like him. I think Mark Jones summed it all up best when he said, if Christ is our mediator, our union with him means not only that we must be holy, but also that we will be able to be like him. And of course, that we will enjoy being like him. A beautiful summary he gives us. And so, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, be encouraged that Christ is at work in his people, both forgiving our sin and producing fruits of obedience. This call to good works and obedience is utmost important, for in Christ it has ceased to be a yoke. It is another reason for us to shout with joy for what our Savior has done. Let's pray as we conclude. Father, what you have done in us in Christ blows our minds. It is a blessing beyond blessings. We are well-schooled, I think, in the fact that the blessings we have in Christ include reconciliation with you, forgiveness of our sins, hope of life with you forever through faith in Christ. May we hear James say, and yes, true faith also leads to the blessings of obedience as God's Spirit works in us and produces fruit to the glory of our God. I pray that you would continue to work in us more and more to the glory of your name. We pray this through Christ. Amen.